Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. I hope you are doing well. I hope you all had a, had a great Thanksgiving. Good time with family, good food, good desserts, I hope. Uh, it was a good week for, for me and my family. had uh, some of Kendra's family come into town. Uh, it was a good time. So hopefully you all had a good Thanksgiving. Thanks for being here, worshiping with us today. And we're going to continue our series going through the book of Acts. We've got a lot to cover today. I'm going to try not to preach all day long like we saw Paul did last week. Thankfully, if anybody falls asleep, you won't fall out of a window. So praise God for that. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 21. If you don't have your Bible, it's all good. You can follow along on the screen right here, or you can uh, grab one of our Bibles out there at our table as our gift to you. But we're going to pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 15. We're going to carry it all the way through chapter 22, verse 22. Nine And last week, what we saw, Paul completing his third missionary journey and making his way toward Jerusalem. He was dead set on getting to Jerusalem. We saw throughout that passage that it was the Spirit of God leading him every step of the way, calling him to Jerusalem. This is exactly where God wants him. But we also saw the Spirit tell Paul, hey, when you get there, don't expect a happy homecoming. This is not a happy trip. When you go to Jerusalem, Expect suffering, expect chains, expect to be arrested. And yet Paul goes anyways. He shows this complete obedience to God no matter where God would take him. So let's see what happens when he gets into Jerusalem. So we pick up in our story starting in verse 15 of Acts 21. It says this, After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So after this, meaning after what we saw last week, they're in Caesarea, and, and Paul is leaving from Caesarea to Jerusalem here. So he's making his way to Jerusalem. Verse 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. <clears throat> After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their head shaved. Then everyone will know what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Okay, so let's pause there. When, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he meets with the Jerusalem church. He meets with the leaders. James, the brother of Jesus, who also wrote the book of James, is the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he meets with him along with the elders of the church. He reports all about his ministry. They praise God, but they also tell him like, hey man, it's good to see you, but you just need to know people are talking about you. And they're spreading these false rumors. They're spreading these lies about you that you're teaching against the law. You're telling Jews not to live according to the law. Now these are all lies and they know that. But they're like, okay, what, what are we going to do? People are going to know that you're here. So they give Paul this request. They say, hey, can, can you appease the, the Jewish Christians here a little bit by, by doing this, by completing this vow with these four other believers 
They've made this vow, most likely a Nazarite vow. That's not important. But what goes along with this is a, is a period of purification and sacrifices to complete at the end of that period. So they're asking Paul to do this with them, to pay for these guys, to support them in this, to kind of show a, a show of good faith, a show of goodwill towards the Jewish Christians in this area. They're saying, hey, by doing this, everybody's going to know, hey, Paul... Paul's not, he doesn't hate the law. He's okay with the law, right? We can calm down about these, these rumors that are going around. So that's what's going on here. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Verse 26. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred the whole crowd, and seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, in this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Which again, that, that's another lie. That didn't happen. <clears throat> the whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragging him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of people followed yelling, get rid of him. Okay, so, so some Jewish people from the province of Asia, maybe from Ephesus. You know, Paul had a lot of opponents there in Ephesus. Somebody sees Paul. And man, they take advantage of that and they raise up this riot against Paul. They say, hey, this is the guy that's preaching against the people, against the law, against this place. And if you remember the story of Stephen, the very first martyr, these were the same charges levied against him that they're doing now to Paul. And just like then, mob violence attacked Stephen and killed him. They try to do the same thing with Paul. They, they, they seize him, they grab him, they start beating him. They're trying to kill him until the Romans come in. So thankfully, uh, there was this tower right there near the temple that housed all of the Roman guards and, and soldiers in Jerusalem. So they see this riot, they hear about it, something, and they come rushing down. The people immediately stop, but they don't know what's going on, right? This crowd's attacking this guy. So they take Paul and put him in custody. They arrest him and thus fulfilling the prophecy that we saw last week that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. So he's arrested now. Let's see what happens. 37, as he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He, the commander, replied, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago that led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Now look, I don't know what's going on with that. Awesome, honestly, like that sounds like an awesome plot to a movie. I would totally see that, but I don't know what's going on there, but he's confusing Paul with somebody else. And Paul's like, no, that, dude, that, that's not me. Verse 39, Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Sicilia, <clears throat> a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hands of the people, to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. So now he's speaking to them in their language, the Hebrew dialect, Aramaic. 
When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail as both high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? Lord said, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you in prison and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So in this moment, Paul addresses the crowd and he recounts his testimony. This is exactly what we saw happen to him all the way back in Acts chapter 9 when on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears before Saul and rescues him, saves him, turns him from a persecutor of the church to now a leader in the church, right? Following the law now, he's following Jesus. So he met Jesus on the road, put his faith in him. And now Jesus, he shares that Jesus, the God is the one who who has called him to the Gentiles. So Paul's whole point in this is like, look guys, I, I was just like you. I was just like you, zealous for the law, following the law, doing everything according to our customs. Man, I I was a Jew of Jews, right? But Jesus changed that. Like this is God's doing. My life is changed because of what God did. I am going to the Gentiles because God has told me to do this. This is all because of him. But the crowd doesn't want to hear that. Let's keep going here. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices shouting, Wipe this man from the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, what are you going to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. The commander came in and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. 
The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. Okay, so at this point, people don't want to hear his, his message. They, they start the uproar again, and, and they can't seem to calm the crowd down. Paul can't continue talking with him, so the Roman guards pull him inside and their solution is, okay, let's question this guy and see what's really going on. And the way they did that at the time was through what was called a scourging. Now, this is exactly what we see happen to Jesus before he was crucified. And it involved being uh, bound with your hands held above your head, with your back exposed to the executioners, and they would take turns whipping you with this cat of nine tails whip that had hooks and stone. And they, like, it was just a vicious process. They would whip you 40 times. And that process alone killed a lot of people. So this was their way of interrogating. Sound, sounds great, right? Like, sign me up for that. And Paul's like, okay, time out. This has gone too far. And he tells them, hey, I'm a Roman citizen because he knows they're not allowed to do this to a Roman citizen. That's, this is against the law to scourge a Roman citizen without him being sentenced to that by the courts. So Paul knows, man, like, you guys can't do this. So he pulls that card out and they're like, oh man, well, we better, we better hold up here. Let's stop this process before we get in any trouble here. So they stop, and what we're going to see next week is their solution is to bring Paul before the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see him address the Sanhedrin next week. All right, so there's a lot going on in this passage, right? There's a lot happening. He gets to Jerusalem. He's got this vow, these requests from the leaders. He goes. He gets this riot stirred up. He gets beaten. He gets arrested. He speaks before the crowd. Like, there's a lot happening in this passage. But what stands out to me when, when I read it, when I, when I looked at this passage— is Paul seems to be caught between these two worlds, right? Between, between the Jewish world and the Gentile world. Right, so he, he's, uh, in, he, he is a Jew by descent, right? His ethnicity is Jewish, but he's not fully accepted by the Jews, right? They, they don't like Paul. They hate Paul because of what he's doing with the Gentiles, because he's preaching the gospel to them, because he's welcoming, him, welcoming them in, right? Like they see this as an attack against them. So he's not fully in the Jewish world. But he's also a, a Roman citizen, but he's not fully accepted by the Romans, by the Gentile world, right? He's not fully, he, he's a part of these two worlds, but he's not fully in either one. He's not fully accepted in either one. And that's because even though Paul is a Jewish citizen and he's also a Roman citizen, he's primarily a citizen of heaven, right? He's a part of the Jewish kingdom. He's a part of the Gentile world, the Roman kingdom, but he is primarily a member of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God underlies everything that we see in Acts. It's, it underlies everything. Acts is all about the kingdom of God advancing through the church. We don't talk about the kingdom a lot, right? In churches at large, we don't really talk about that. You maybe haven't heard many sermons on the kingdom of God, even in our series of Acts. I mean, we've done 40 weeks in Acts and we've barely mentioned the kingdom of God. So today, I want to spend some time talking about the kingdom of God because I believe that this, this is what directs all of Paul's steps. We see this all throughout his ministry, and we see it especially here in this passage. The reason he does the things that he does is all about the kingdom of God. And look, this is a significant topic in all of Scripture. Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke, mentions the kingdom of God more than any other New Testament author. Over 30 times in his gospel, mentions the kingdom of God. 
Acts specifically references it six times, which is the third most of any New Testament book. One of the more recent places that we saw this is in Acts 19.8, when Paul arrives into Ephesus. It says that he's teaching in the synagogue, he's teaching in the house, the hall of Tyrannus. And what is he teaching? He's teaching about the kingdom of God. We're going to see this at the end of Acts when he makes his way to Rome under uh, imprisonment. He's in Rome, but he's able to teach and preach. And what's he teaching and preaching on? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was Jesus' first sermon. The first sermon Jesus ever preached was, repent for the kingdom is here. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus tells believers, his followers, to seek first what? The kingdom of God. So if we're to seek the kingdom first, if we're to talk about the kingdom, teach and preach and share about the kingdom, we should probably know what the kingdom is. So what is the kingdom of God? When we say the kingdom of God, what do I mean by that? What does the Bible mean by that? Well, simply put, the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign on the earth. It's God's rule and reign on the earth. It's where God exercises his will among humanity and where God's desires are made manifest, are made visible, are made tangible by his people. One of my favorite authors and philosophers is Dallas Willard. Uh, he's since gone to be with the Lord, but he, he said this, he summarized this about the kingdom of God, and I love the way he puts this. He said, the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. The range of God's effective will. Now I say that, and you're like, well, don't, what does that mean? Well, we all have a range of effective will. It's, it's the, the area of influence that we have where we can uh, make sure the things that we want happen, right? Like as a parent, you have a range of effective will over your children. Now that might be a small range. That might be a small range like that. That might be a tight range like it is my kids. And they might be like, yeah, sounds good, dad, but I'm gonna go do whatever I wanna do, right? Like we can only do so much, but even maybe in your jobs, if you're a boss, you, you're, you're over people manager, you have a range of effective will. There, there are, there are ways and areas where you can influence what happens. Well, that's the kingdom of God. It is the range of God's effective will. It is where God gets things done, where he gets his will done. So when Jesus leads us to pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, what he's praying is, is for God to come and complete his will here on the earth and amongst his people. That's the kingdom of God, where, where God's will, where God's desires are completed, are fulfilled in this world and among humanity. So the kingdom of God and that understanding is far bigger than just my personal salvation or my personal obedience to God. It's far bigger than that. The kingdom of God, living and seeking first the kingdom of God, should, should influence everything that I do. It should change everything about me. It should affect everything about me. How I live my life, how I treat others, how I interact with this world and with the culture that I'm in. It should change everything. And see, I, I believe here in this passage, Paul shows us what life in the kingdom looks like. What happens when we do seek first the kingdom of God? What happens when we live primarily for God's kingdom and not the kingdom of this world? See, what Paul does here in his ministry and especially here in Jerusalem, like it makes no sense apart from him dedicating his life to Jesus and Jesus' kingdom. Like it just doesn't make sense. Like who willingly goes somewhere knowing that you're going to be arrested, knowing that you are going to face imprisonment? Like who does that? 
Who willingly puts himself in danger like Paul did? Knowing, man, I'm about to go to, where, to the temple where all the Jewish people are. And they hate me. And they're always attacking me. They're always opposing me. They've run him out of every city. He's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been arrested. All because of how much the Jews hate him. And yet Paul willingly goes into that. He willingly submits himself to a Jewish process, right? The vow process. Like he willingly steps into that. Why? Like that doesn't make any sense. Who does that? Well, we do things like that when we're seeking first the kingdom of God. When, when our primary concern is not about fitting into this world or that world or this culture or that culture, it's primarily about living for Jesus and his kingdom. Seeking first God's kingdom. This is what happens. This is what our lives look like. So let's see, how, how does, how, how, what, what example can we learn from Paul here about life in the kingdom? What, what are some ways that we see the kingdom, following the kingdom, living for the kingdom, seeking first the kingdom, affect Paul here? Well, I think there's three ways that we see living in God's kingdom change and affect our lives. The first way is our allegiance. Our allegiance. The first thing that changes when we live for the kingdom of God over the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of our culture or ourselves or whatever kingdom we're chasing after, when we live first for God's kingdom, the first thing that changes is our allegiance, our loyalty. And look, we, we understand loyalty and allegiance, right? Especially to, to a nation, which is really what, what Paul, the tension here is. Like Paul is not giving his full allegiance to the Jewish nation. He's not giving his full allegiance to the Roman nation, right? We understand allegiance. What, what are we taught in schools, right? We were taught the Pledge of Allegiance, right? They're still, my kids are learning that in their school. They look at the flag, they put their hand right here. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, blah, 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 right? We know that. We know that by heart. We, we, we grew up learning that. Why? Because it's, it's part of being an American citizen. We're pledging our loyalty and our allegiance to the state, the country that we're in. So we understand this idea, pledging allegiance and loyalty to something. We do this all the time, not just with our nation or where we're from or, or anything like that. And one of the main ways that we see allegiance play out in this culture is, is sports, right? Our sports teams. Man, you grow up rooting for a certain team, you root for that team, and you hate the rival of that team, right? Like you want the, the, the end of the rival and you want the success of, of your team that you're rooting for. Uh, and I think we see this in a lot of different ways. Uh, the World Cup is going on, if you guys are following that, but the World Cup is going on. I had that on TV over the weekend because the United States was playing England, and Kendra saw that. She's like, you don't even watch soccer. What are you doing? I was like, babe, this, this is the World Cup. And it's not just the World Cup. It's, it's the U.S. versus England. This is revolutionary war all over again. We've got to defeat these guys. And she's like, you're crazy. This is soccer. I'm like, no, no, no. This is bigger than soccer. This is more important than that, right? Like the Olympics draw this out. Like we all of a sudden get this nationalistic pride when the Olympics come around every four years, right? Or, uh, you know, the other ways. So I'm taking Zayden today, this afternoon, to his first NBA game. And you guys know me. I love the NBA and I love the Miami Heat. And the Hawks are playing the Miami Heat. So he asked me, Dad, who are you rooting for? I said, son, we are rooting for the Miami Heat. As for me and my household, we will root for the Miami Heat, all right? This is what we do. And Kendra's, Kendra's mom is in town. She's flying back today, but uh, she's in town. And she's like, well, what are you, you going to do if he decides to root for the Hawks? I'm like, well, he can make that decision. If he wants to choose willingly to root for a terrible franchise that will never win anything, sure, by all means, do that. There's just consequences for that decision, right? But again, as for me and my household, we will do this. So we have loyalty to that. We have loyalty to our, our favorite sports teams, our favorite brands, our, our favorite stores. Like we're like, man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm only buying this brand. I'm only shopping here. Uh, we, we have loyalty to a lot of things. When we put our faith in Jesus, 
our loyalty and our allegiance should change. We, we talked about this a little bit last week, right? When we put our faith in Jesus, when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to give our lives to him, give everything to him. And he calls us to give him our allegiance, our loyalty, right? We are primarily living for him and not this world, not ourselves, not our selfish desires and ambitions. We are living for Jesus, and we see this change happen in the life of Paul, right? When, when Paul recounts his testimony, how does he start out? He, he says, hey, guys, look, I was just like you, man. I was a Jew of Jews. Look at what he says in chapter 22, starting in verse 3. He says, he continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the, the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul's like, look guys, y'all are, y'all are zealous for the law. Y'all are excited to be Jews and part of the Jewish nation. Like you're all about that. Dude, I, I was more than that. Like, take your zeal and double it. And that's who I was. Like, I was, I'm a Jew of Jews, right? I was educated at one of the most well-known Pharisees. I, I grew up in this city, man. I was all about the law. I even persecuted the church. And he references the council and the elders. He's like, look, y- y'all, go ask, y'all go ask the leaders. Go ask the high priest. They know who I am. They know about me. They know how much zeal I had for the Jewish nation, how much zeal I had for the law, how much I hated the church. And I persecuted it to death, arresting believers, putting believers to the death. Man, I was all about that. He's like, y'all know who I am. But man, then, then things changed. Things change, and he references how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, how, he, how Jesus appeared before him. And in that moment, his life is changed. Paul now has a new identity. No longer is he primarily a Jewish man. No longer is he primarily dedicated to the law and fighting against the church. Now he's a believer. He's a witness of Jesus. Look at what is said about him in verses 14 and 16 of chapter 22. And he said, the God of our ancestors, this is Ananias talking to him, the God of our ancestors has appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth. Why is that? Since you will be a witness. You will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Faith in Jesus changed everything for Paul. It changed everything for him. It changed who he was living for, and that led to change how he was living his life. That's exactly what it should be for us and how it is for us. When we put our faith in Jesus, it changes everything. It changes everything. Paul says this in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He says, he, that's Jesus, Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves in him. 
we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love the way he describes our salvation there, that he takes us out of one kingdom and puts us into another kingdom. See, apart from Jesus, without Christ, we are living in the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. We are consumed by our sins, slaves to our sin. We're living in the kingdom of darkness, which, which only leads to brokenness and despair and discouragement and, and shame and guilt. That's our lives apart from Jesus, just a total mess. Living for the kingdom of darkness doing the works of the kingdom of darkness. And now through Jesus, he's taken us out of that kingdom and put us into his kingdom. And that changes everything. No longer are we living for our sin, for, for the things of this world. No longer are we following after our desires, our ambitions. No longer are we in bondage to our sin and our guilt and our shame. Now we are forgiven we're redeemed, we're set free. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this changes everything about us. See, now, now that we're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, we're, we're in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus, God's kingdom. Now we have a new identity. No longer are we a slave to our sin. We are a child of God. And look, that makes a world of difference. That makes a world of difference. That changes everything about us. As a child of God, what that means, what that means is I am fully known and at the same time fully loved and accepted. I mean, think about that for a moment. Because whether we want to admit it or not, I, I believe all of us long to be fully known and fully loved. But see, too often we have this struggle of, man, if I let people know who I really am, man, they might judge me. They might think less of me. You know, we have this, this, this bent towards, I, I have to prove myself to other people. I have to earn their love and acceptance. And we bring that mindset into our relationship with God. And, and God's like, no, 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 no. No, you don't understand. I know exactly who you are. I see everything about you. I see the depths of your heart, the depths of your sin, all those little dark places that we don't let anybody know about, that we don't let anybody inside. God sees all of that. He knows exactly who we are. And he says, I love you. And you are accepted into my kingdom, not based on who you are and what you've done, but based completely on what I've done for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of being in the kingdom of God. That's the beauty of being a child of God. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to prove my worth and my value. I don't have to earn love and acceptance. I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not. And that's all because of Jesus. That only happens through life in the kingdom. And look, just like Paul, his new identity changed how we lived, that should be the same for us. Our identity as a child of God should change how we live our lives. See, now I, I, I live for Jesus. I'm no longer living for the kingdom of darkness, right? I'm no longer living for that. I'm living for Jesus. I'm chasing after Jesus. My life is focused on living for him and pushing out and pushing away the power of the kingdom of darkness. Pushing that out, getting rid of that 
and bringing in God's light and God's kingdom to my life and the lives of those around me. So the first thing that changes is our allegiance. Second thing we see here change as a result of being in the kingdom is our relationships. Our relationships, being in the kingdom of God changes our relationships. It should change how we treat other people, how we interact with other people, how we build relationships, how we live around and with other people. It should change all of that. Look how Paul is treated by people in this passage and how he responds to that treatment. So we see this starting in, in chapter 21, verse 20. So he's, he's meeting with the leaders of the Jerusalem church and they say, when they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their head shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrifice to idols, from, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more is he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had seen previously Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought, them, brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Okay, so what, what's going on here? What, especially what, what's going on with this request from the Jerusalem church for him to take this vow, right? Like this just seems weird. It seems out of place. Like what's, what's going on here? Because it seems like they're asking Paul to put himself back under the law, Right? And we know from, from Paul's letters where he's like, man, I don't live under the law anymore. I live according to Jesus. I follow Jesus. I walk in the spirit. I don't walk according to the law. I don't follow that anymore. I follow Jesus. So Paul has, has said, I, I'm free from the law. I'm not bound to the law. I don't have to follow the law to be righteous, to have salvation. That comes from Jesus alone. And now it seems like these Jewish Christians are like, hey, can you maybe just for, for a few days, can you put yourself back under the law for us? That would be great. Can you do that? Like, what's going on here? What's happening here? Well, just give, let me give you some context to keep in mind to maybe better understand what's happening. See, during this period of time, there was growing tension between the Jews and the Romans in Jerusalem. So there was a bunch of insurrections and a bunch of revolts, and there was just this like building nationalistic pride from the Jewish people. And man, they were against all things Roman, against all things Gentile. Like they hated the Romans, they hated the Gentiles. And this, this is going to build and build and build until we get to what's called the Jewish Wars in 66 AD, which eventually ends in 70 AD with the destruction of the Jewish temple. So like this is a, this is a crazy time right now. All right, this, is a, this is a difficult time building tensions and just this nationalistic pride from the Jews in Jerusalem. And here comes Paul with his 
his mission to the Gentiles, welcoming in Gentiles, being a little lax and, and relaxed about the law and not forcing Gentiles to come under the law. And now he's, he's bringing all this news about Gentiles putting their faith in Jesus. And look, the, the Jerusalem church, man, they're, they're in a tough spot. They're like, look, we, we, got, we got our people who are all like really excited to be Jews and hate all things Gentiles right now. And like, we're trying to help disciple them out of that. And here comes Paul. Like, Paul, we're, we're really excited about what's going on. Like, that's awesome. Praise God for your work among the Gentiles. But dude, people hate you. Okay, people hate you. And they're going to be mad that you're here. They're going to be mad to hear what you're talking about. So can you like, can you just, can you just do this one little thing for us? Can you do this thing for us? Can you just kind of put yourself in a situation, do the vow, do the purification process, even pay for their sacrifices? to do this vow, and look, that'll just, that'll, that'll appease some people. And Paul agrees. Paul agrees, and look, it, it, it's important to keep in mind that the end of a Nazarite vow, which these men were doing, ended with these seven days of purification, and it ended on that seventh day with a bunch of sacrifices made in the temple. Like, this is not a cheap request that they're asking for Paul to pay for four guys to do their sacrifices, all right? This is a, this is a pretty big request they're asking him. And Paul agrees, Paul agrees to do it. Now, why, why would he do that? He could have said no, right? He could have been like, look, guys, look, I love you. I love the people here. That, that's cool that those guys are doing the vow. But like, man, I didn't, I didn't sign up for them. I didn't, and look, I, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I don't have to do this. I'm not bound by the law anymore. I'm not bound to do these things. I don't have to earn anything from anybody else. Like, I don't have to do this. Paul could have said that. We all would have been like, yeah, amen. Sounds great, Paul. Good call. And look, there's a lot of commentaries. You, you read kind of what the history of this was, people thinking and, and uh, trying to understand this. And a lot of people say, man, Paul was, was unwise. And some even go as far as to say Paul was sinning by agreeing to do this. And that the church was out of line and sinning by even asking Paul to do this. Now, I'm not, I'm not willing to go that far. And here's why. I, I think Paul agreed for a very specific reason. And it has to do with exactly what we're talking about. It has to do with life in the kingdom because Paul knows that living for the kingdom of God means that he's not living for himself. It's not about him. It's not about what he wants. It's not about his desires. It's not about his preferences. It's not about his rights. It's not about his freedoms. Life in the kingdom is primarily about living for Jesus and loving and serving other people. And that's what Paul was all about. And I think that's why he agreed to do this because life in the kingdom changes how we interact with people, changes how we treat people, changes how we think about our relationships with people. And I think the main way we see this here with Paul is that he willingly laid down his rights and his freedoms. And again, why would he do that? Why would he willingly do that? It's because of his love. It's because of his love for God and his love for the Jewish people. He loved them so much, even though they hated him, even though they wanted to see him dead. Paul knows this. He knows this. He knows what's going to happen with these people. He's not surprised by anything that happens here. But he, he loves them so much that he's like, look, if I got to pay for some guys to do a sacrifice and do a vow, if I got to willingly kind of put myself back under this in hopes of building a bridge for these people to share the gospel, I'll do whatever. Sign me up. It doesn't matter. I'll do it. And that's exactly what I think is going on here with Paul. We see Paul references even in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. He says, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under a law, 
under the law like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law. Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I, that I may by every possible means save some Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I might share in the blessings. Why does Paul do this? Why does he submit himself to this process? Why does he agree to go along with this? Why does he sacrifice uh, money to help these guys out? Why does he do all that? It's because of the gospel. It's for the gospel. It's by by any means necessary, man. I'll do whatever it takes to win some for the name of Jesus Christ. Paul is driven by his love for God and his love for other people, and he's willing to do whatever it takes. If that means laying down some rights, laying down some freedoms, whatever, I don't sign me up, I'll do it. That's Paul's mindset here. And look, th- sure, are there times to assert our rights? Yes, we see Paul do that, right? He's about to get whipped and beaten severely by the Romans, and he's like, hey, time out, guys, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that. Are there times to assert and fight for our rights? Yes. There are times where governments overstep their bounds and create great injustice against people. And we as Christians should rise up and defend the justice of God and the right treatment of people. Yes, absolutely. But I think the primary bent, the primary position of believers should be one not of asserting and defending our rights, but one of willingly sacrificing our rights and our freedoms in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe our primary bent should be. Now look, what are some ways that that Paul... <clears throat> lays down his freedoms in this passage. Well, one way, he, he lays down his preferences. Paul shows us, especially in that 1 Corinthians 9 passage, how flexible he was on open-handed issues. People under the law, sure, I'll put myself under the law so that I can win some to Jesus. Those without the law, sure, I'll live without the law so that I can win some to Jesus, to the weak, to the strong, to whoever. I'll do whatever it takes to win people for Jesus. These are all open-handed issues. Paul lays down his preferences and I think too often our bent is to take our open-handed preferences, our opinions about how things should be and how things should be done, and close our hands around that and say, you have to do this. If you're a true follower of Jesus, then you'll do this. Then you'll believe this. Then you'll act in this way. And we take these open-handed preferences and we close our hands around them. Paul shows us, no, the, the way of Jesus is to lay those down. So we need to think and ask ourselves, what preferences are we demanding from others or forcing on others? It could be a whole host of things. It could be our, our worship style or our style of church, right? Like we could, we could look down on how other churches do worship services or how they conduct things or how they preach or how they do discipleship or how they do kids ministry or whatever it is. And like, oh, man, man, they're not very biblical, are they, over there? We do things the right way. I do things the right way. Church should be done this way. It's like that where I don't I don't don't see that in in here at all. What are you talking about? We force our preferences on people. It it could be our politics, right? The politics are the great divider in our nation right now, and they can be a a significant divider in the church, and that should not be. That's an open-handed issue. Schooling, private school, homeschool, public school, we could be very strongly against and for any one of those, right? And then we, we force that, oh, well, if you really love your kids, man, you'll send them over here. Oh, you, you do that for school? Oh. 
I wouldn't do that, but you know, whatever you want to do, right? Like we, we force our opinions on people. The, the way we parent, right? Like, oh, well, I, I choose to discipline my kids this way. I disciple my kids this way. If you really love God, then you'll do it this way. <clears throat> I can't tell you how many articles, books, podcasts I've heard and read where that's exactly the sentiment. If you really love Jesus, well, then you'll do things this way. It's like, again, I, I don't see that in here. Point me to the verse where it says that. We force our opinions on people. I, again, I could go on and on, the way we spend money, how we uh, do our free, how, what we do on the weekends, right? Like I could do this all day long. The point is that, that we, we keep things with open hands and we willingly lay down our preferences to love other people. Another way Paul sacrifices, he laid down his money. He was willing to sacrifice and be generous for the gospel. Are we willing to do the same with the way God has blessed us, with the, with the money that God has blessed us? Are we willing to live a sacrificial, generous lifestyle for the name of Jesus? Paul laid down his right to defend himself. Look, we, we see all throughout this, there's a lot of false rumors and gossip going around about Paul. And Paul finally gets his chance to talk, finally gets his chance to defend himself. And what does he do? Does he go, hey guys, look, just so y'all know, this is what I've done, this is what I've done, this is what I haven't done anything. Hey, you said this, and I haven't done anything like that. You said I brought Trophimus into the temple. No, I didn't do that. I didn't, you, go ask him, man. He's, he's over here. You go ask. I didn't do any of that stuff. He could have done that. And we would have been like, yeah, Paul, get him. But he doesn't do that. His defense is all about Jesus. He's not focused on himself. He's not worried about himself. He's like, man, I got this chance to tell this crowd about Jesus, and that's what I'm doing. I don't care about myself. I'm not here to defend myself. Jesus will defend me. I'm here to talk about Jesus. That's my focus. That's my drive. He lays down his right to defend himself. How do we respond when people speak against us? Are we quick and so willing to jump to arms to defend our, our character, our reputation, our name? Are we trusting that to Jesus and focused on, on him and what he wants us to do? Again, are there times to do that? Yes. But I think that the primary bent should be one of sacrifice. And look, before we go on, we can't camp out here, but there's a lesson for us as believers here. And it's something that the Bible speaks over and over and over about, and that is that gossip is dangerous and destructive. False rumors and gossip led to Paul almost being beaten to death. It led to his arrest. Gossip and rumors have no place in the lives of believers and has no place in the church. We've got to be careful and we've got to protect against that. Again, we don't have time to camp out there, but that is, that's important for us to see in this passage, how damaging that can be. All right, so let's, let's look at our last point here. So we see that, that the kingdom, life in the kingdom changes our allegiance. It changes our relationships. And the third thing we'll end here, it changes our role. It changes our role. We all have a role in this world, right? Some of us have many roles. We have a, a role at our job. You know, we have, we have this job. We have this position. We, we do these things with our job. We have a role at home, spouse or parent or a child, right? We all have a role. We have responsibilities with that. We have roles in our community, right? Maybe you're a coach or a volunteer in the community. You serve the community in some way. We, we have roles, well, my kids, as they get older, or two older ones, are starting to learn, man, that being in a household, uh, I have a role as a child. And part of that role is to do certain chores. And right now, we have this puppy, and, and it's to, hey, you got to help out with the dog. Y'all wanted a dog? You got to help out with the dog. Like, they, they're learning now, oh, I have, I have a role, and I have a responsibility that goes along with that role. Well, see, Paul had a role 
And his role before Jesus was that of persecutor. And he was fighting against Jesus and the church every step of the way, giving his life, dedicating his life to fight against the church. And then when he met Jesus, that changes immediately, right? He goes from persecutor to now he is a witness for Jesus. That's exactly what our role is. When we step into the kingdom, our role is that of a witness to Jesus Christ. And here, here's what that means for us. Two ways of what that means. One, as Jesus' witness, it means that we speak for and be on behalf of the king. We speak for and on behalf of the king. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Starting in verse 18, he says, Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. See, Paul in this passage is speaking of our salvation and the, thing, the conclusion that he draws is because we've been saved, now we have a role. Now we have a job. Now we have a responsibility to preach the name of Jesus. We are Christ's ambassadors. And he says, and he is making his appeal through us. What that means is God's saving message, God's message of reconciliation, his plan for that to be delivered to the world is by it being given by his followers, by being spoken by his followers. That's God's plan. His plan to, to bring the saving message of Jesus to the world is through us. We are his ambassadors. We are his mouthpiece. Just like, you know, United States ambassadors all over the world are in these other countries. What's their job? It's to represent the United States in that country, to speak on behalf of the United States, represent the United States in all ways in that country. We have been put here on this earth. We have been saved by Jesus so that we can be his representative to the world, so that we can be his mouthpiece, so that we can be his ambassador. We are called by Jesus to bring his message to the world around us. This is our role. This is what we've all been called to do. So as believers, what's our role? What are we supposed to do? We speak about the king. We point people to the king. We bring the king's message to the world. We are his ambassadors. The second part about our role in this world, being in the, in the kingdom of God, what are we supposed to do? We're to advance the kingdom. We're to advance the kingdom. And look, I know a lot of times when we talk about that, especially in the book of Acts, that's primarily through preaching and sharing the gospel, right? We see that in Acts. How is the kingdom advanced through the church? It's by the people of God sharing the message of God, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. But again, the kingdom of God is far bigger than, than my salvation or other people's salvation. So advancing the kingdom is more than that. See, the, the kingdom of God in this earth at this time is really a restoration of what we see in Genesis chapter 1. It's a restoration of what we see all the way back in creation. When God created the world, he created everything and he said it was all good. And he created us and he said we were good 
And what does he say about when he created us? That, that we are made in the image of God. We are made in his image. And he gave us a job to do. And, and, and our job was to exercise dominion, to rule and reign over the world as God's representatives here. That was our job. That's what we were called to do. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It means to, that, that we are to live in such a way that we display and reflect God's character, God's nature, God's desires here in this world. That's what we were originally created to do. But when sin came in, it damaged all of that. No longer are we advancing the kingdom of God. Because of sin, apart from Christ, we actually advance the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness through our sin, through living in disobedience and rebellion to God. But now through faith in Jesus, when he saves us, he restores that. And now our job is restored to advance his kingdom, to display his character, to, to make manifest his will, his desires here in this world, to correct the dominion and the authority that he's given us. No longer is it given to Satan. It's now back in God's hands. And we advance his kingdom. We bring his desire, his influence to all parts of our world, all parts of our culture. Look, see, that, that's far bigger than just my personal salvation and my personal obedience to Jesus. That should affect every way in which I interact with the culture here. It affects how I work. It affects how maybe I, I, I vote if we're talking politics, right? Like it affects all of those things. It affects how I respond to the injustices of this world. The ways where God's will and reign is, is broken. It affects how we respond to that. It affects how I build relationships with people. It affects how I speak, how I treat people, right? It affects all of that. That's what it means to advance the kingdom of God. It means to advance his rule and reign here in this world, here, right here, right now. I think too often we have this approach of, of man, when, when Jesus comes back, that's when that's going to happen, right? Oh, when Jesus returns, that's when, when he'll make all things right, and he will. But he didn't call us to just sit and wait on that. He called us to, to go and do and to advance his kingdom. So we need to constantly be thinking, man, where has God placed me? What influence has he given me? What, what areas of life can I advance his kingdom where I can make his effective will happen here and now? That's what it means to advance the kingdom. That's what he's called us to do. That's our role in this world. So the book of Acts is, is all about the people of God advancing the kingdom of God by sharing the message of God through the power of God. And Paul displays this throughout his entire ministry. He's focused on following Jesus and living first and foremost for the kingdom. And now as we see his, his, his free life as a missionary come to a close with the end of his third journey and his arrest, that doesn't mean that Paul stops living for the kingdom. Doesn't mean that, okay, well, now I'm arrested. Now I'm in custody. Now I'm going to be in, in prison and in custody for, for years until the end of Acts here. Like we, we, when we leave the book of Acts, Paul is still under arrest. But Paul doesn't stop living for the kingdom. He doesn't stop 
living. He shows where his true loyalties lie. He demonstrates his love for others by laying down his rights and taking advantage of every opportunity to bring the message of Jesus to those around him. Doesn't matter if it's as a free man going from country to country. Doesn't matter if it's before Jews, before Gentiles, before Roman soldiers, before governors and kings, before the emperor himself. It doesn't matter. Paul is focused on taking advantage of every opportunity to bring the message and the love of Jesus to the world around him. Is this true of us? Are we living first and foremost for the kingdom of God? Are we chasing after any number of other kingdoms out there? Are we chasing after our kingdom? Is it just all about me and what I want? Or are we living for Jesus? Are we seeking first his kingdom? In a moment, I'm going to pray just like we do every single week. The band's going to come back up here, lead us in a time of worship, and, and we're going to step into a time of communion. And again, this is, this is a time for believers in the room. So believers in the room, I want to encourage you, take some time, prepare your heart, spend some time in prayer. Maybe this is a time for us to, to come before our king in, 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 in repentance, right? Maybe there's some times that we're realizing, man, I've stepped outside of seeking the kingdom, man, and I've been living for myself. I've been living for this world. I've been living for any number of things that we chase after, and it's time to, to come back. And remember, remember, God, Jesus already knows this, right? Like our confessions to him don't surprise him. He already knows that. And his love for us doesn't change, right? It's not like, oh, Travis, if you would, if you would confess and apologize and repent, well, then I'll love you again. No, that's not, that's not how it works. That love doesn't change. That acceptance doesn't change. What confession does is it just, it puts us back in line with that. It recognizes, man, Jesus, I've stepped outside of that, and now I'm coming back. And man, nothing makes God's heart happier than sinners coming back to him, right? Like, he loves that. There's no shame, there's no condemnation, there's no guilt before the throne of Jesus. We as believers can approach boldly and come into his presence. And again, that's, what, that's, that's a way that we do that, is through communion. That, that, that's what that word means, is to commune with God, to fellowship with Jesus. Just the simple act of taking these wafers and that juice, that act alone, the Bible says by doing that, we step into his presence. This is, this is a beautiful gift that he's given us, church. So let's spend some time, let's prepare our hearts, and as, as you're ready, you come to the tables, you, you take, you eat, you drink, and you worship our good God and Savior for all that he's done for us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you and we, we thank you, Lord, for your truth, for your Lord, I thank you for the example that you've given us in Paul, not that he was perfect, not that he did all things well and, and right. He tells us, Lord, that he's the chief of sinners, but, but in his example, Lord, you've shown us some ways in which it looks like to live for you to follow you in a world that is set against you, that is opposed to you in every way, shape, and form. Paul shows us what obedience looks like, what, what trust in you looks like. So Lord, would, would we follow you? Would we seek first you and your kingdom? Would we not live for the things of this world? In many ways that it seeks to pull us away from you, Jesus. 
Will we not worry about fitting in to this world, Lord, but will we worry about following hard after you? Because it's in you where we find life. It's in you where we find love. It's in you that we find acceptance. It's in you that we find satisfaction and fulfillment in this life and beyond, Lord. So Jesus, would, we, would you lead us to your kingdom to seek first you and your ways, Lord? Would you give us the strength to walk in obedience to wherever you're taking us, Lord? Jesus, we love you. We humbly submit our lives to you, Lord. We give ourselves to you, Jesus. Do with us whatever you want, Lord. We love you. We give you the praise and glory today. In your name we pray. Amen.